Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. The Pope and Young Club wants to welcome you as we rally together to ensure our bow hunting opportunities for today and tomorrow. You've come to the podcast that believes in preserving, protecting, and promoting the passion for bow hunting. Join us as we strive to be the voice of today's bow hunter. This is the Pope and Young Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Pope and Young Podcast. This is Jason Roundsville. I'm joined today by my co-host, Dylan Ray, and we have with us Warren Holder, known from Raised Hunting, also an official measure for Pope and Young, Boone and Crockett. Got several Pope and Young, Boone and Crockett entries. Warren, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. I yeah, appreciate you taking some time for us. Excited to, to get to talk to you a little bit. So uh, tell us, I, I mean, we've got to start off. Tell us a little bit about your uh, being an official measure. Well, I, uh, I've actually kind of always had a real interest in scoring animals. It was never that I was, you know, just obsessed with the inches, but I really liked getting, you know, an idea because sometimes you got a deer that is an eight point and 160 inch eight point compared to a 160 inch 10 point is a big difference. So I was always kind of interested in it. And, uh, then I actually, um, knew Eli Randall from some youth camps that we did, uh, way back in the day so rest in peace to eli that was absolutely uh, bad deal um so he's actually kind of one that got me interested in it and then i took him up on it about 10 years later he's like you become a scorer yet and i was like no but i'm really thinking about it and he said well you should and so i applied and um got into the class and i can't i was you know just telling jason i can't remember if it was two years ago now it might even been three um and went to the joint class for in Missoula, Montana, for Boone and Crockett and Pope and Young, and became a scorer, um, which has been really cool. I love getting to see all the different animals that people kill and um, getting to lay the tape to them and see what they come out at. is It's always pretty cool. And uh, as you guys know, the missions of Pope and Young and, and Boone and Crockett are so much bigger than just scoring animals. And I'm glad that I have the opportunity to help people understand that it is way more than just a record book. So. I'm yeah. glad to say that because that's one of the things we battle constantly, you know, is is it's way more than a record book. So I hope that, you know, I, I hope that all of our measures are trying to, to preach that message. So so I appreciate you 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 taking on that task of, of showing people that, you know, it, you do get your book, your, your animal in the books, but it's not to honor the animal uh, or it's not to honor you as a hunter, but it's to honor the animal. And it's so much more than just uh, how good of a hunter you are and showing your accolades. but but it's conservation and it's honoring the animal and, and, uh, and helping us produce better, better records so we can better fight for bow hunting, uh, rights. And so I appreciate you saying that, man. 
Well, absolutely. And it's pretty easy to do in all honesty. You know, I get, I get that a lot. A lot of times people will want to have their animals scored, uh, but they're not sure if they want to enter it. And I'm telling them, well, one, why wouldn't you, you know, it's pretty cool, but two, you're also going to be helping a group that protects conservation that is out there fighting for us as bow hunters. And, um, that money is going to go to things that is going to benefit you in the future. It also gives us a great track record of things in the history books that we can look at and use for research. So um, there's really no reason not to. And usually when, when they look at it that way, they're like, okay, I can get behind that. And they, most of them will do it at that point. So, um, but it's just, a, just making sure that people have the understanding of really what it is. And that's hard. It's hard for people to understand unless you just go research, you know, if you, if you spend some time on the website and really dive in, you can say, Hey, they're more than, than just a record book. But from the outside, that's kind of what it appears to be. And, and I don't know how many people I've heard just in the last few years tell me, well, you know, I'd love to be a member, but I haven't shot anything, you know, that makes the book yet. And it's like, well, you don't have to be in the book to be a member. You know, if you're a bow hunter, you can be a member of Pope and Young. And a lot of people don't, realize that and don't understand you know how we came about and it's it's exciting to be able to tell that story absolutely and i definitely think that that is a pretty big uh misconception i hear that a lot too um and people are always kind of surprised when you inform them that you don't have to have, you know killed a pope and young animal or numerous of them to be able to be a part of pope and young so hopefully we can continue to get that message out there yeah well, we're working on it, and we've got some stuff uh, coming up here at convention that I think will help facilitate that as well. Um, some messaging that we're going to be sending out to the to the public. So we're excited about that. Yeah, it looks like you guys are plenty busy with that. <laughs> oh man, yeah, it's it's all encompassing right now. So what's uh, speaking of that? What occupies your your time this this time of the year? Oh, I'm uh, plenty busy as well. So for as far as our the race hunting side, for those that haven't um, aren't familiar with race hunting, basically we have a TV show and we've had a TV show going into our eighth season. Our show, um, I like, I'm proud to say that it's quite a bit different than your typical hunting show. It's based around our family. It's quite a bit different now because when we first started it, I was, man, I think I was probably 15 and my little brother was... 10 and then now i'm 25 and he's 21 so we get all the time you know people saying i've, I've watched you guys show up or grow up yeah uh, which is cool and it's definitely different but we really try to capture the story of hunting and what it means to us more than just you know killing an animal or or going and on a hunt somewhere it's the things that we got out of that and then we try to basically tell it just like that happened in the story through a really cool cinematic lens. So uh, we've been getting ready for, we're about to launch season eight here in the next few weeks on Outdoor Channel. And then we've also kind of branched off and we've started a new company called Raised Outdoors. And that's kind of our way of giving back. We uh, have taken, we've been blessed to spend a lot of time outdoors. And so we've taken all that information and that time and we've built an app where people can go in there and get all kinds of information, tips, um, you know, great deals on products and stuff as well. Uh, so we always knew that we wanted to be able to help other people be successful and we didn't really know how to do it. Um, and now technology has made that a lot easier. So that's kept us super busy. We've, we, you know, we like to say that, uh, don't learn from our successes, learn from our mistakes because we've made a lot. Um, and fortunately now that we've been filming for probably almost 15 years, we've got the majority of them on camera as well. So <laughs> that's, uh, that's one thing about the one nice thing about being just a little bit older is, is I didn't grow up, you know, to, to go to the next level. I didn't grow up with everybody having a camera in their pocket, let alone everybody having a cameraman following me around in the woods. So, you know, right. I, I remember, <laughs> Hunting on camera is a challenge uh, because then you have to relive all the stupid stuff you did. And uh, and you told me a story one time <laughs> about your mom falling and uh, in a creek and uh, and 
that was for for Bear Archery's podcast, and Bear actually ended up using that as like the teaser clip for the episode. And I remember you saying, "Man, my mom's gonna kill me that we use that <laughs> use that as the teaser clip." And that's like the one thing we didn't catch on camera, and that's what's been different <laughs> about us too. Is our show? It's always we've always filmed each other. So you know, me and my brother will go hunting, and my brother will film me, or I'll film him, or I'll go with my dad, and my dad will film me. Um, you know, where most hunting shows, it's, it's two guys or a guy and a camera guy. And my dad, for whatever reason, he can't even explain it. But, uh, from the time that we were probably, we were little kids, I mean, two years old and up, he just always had a camera and was just filming stuff. He never really knew why, never knew. He just started filming everything. Um, and so then we, you know, by the time I was 16, we already had 15 years of, of footage and we never had intentions of making a TV show. We never had intentions of trying to, to do anything with that footage. Um, but uh, he was a firefighter before, and then he herniated a disc in his back. And so technically, they wouldn't allow him to continue to work because he could be a liability. Um, and so then he needed something else to do. And uh, when he did that, he raised hunting, was born. And then it kind of seemed like we found out what he was filming all that stuff for. So it's kind of cool. That is cool. It's nice to hear when things, you know, adversity pops up and then something even better comes out of it. Yeah. Well, if you know my dad, he's uh, probably the last person you're ever going to meet that's just going to sit around. He would go absolutely nuts. <laughs> yeah. So he had to find something to do. Well, if, if you got to find something to do, you know, having, uh, having an outdoor TV show and, and, you know, spending time with your family in the woods, I, those sound like some pretty good options to me. Yeah. And I think he would tell you the, the same. And that was yeah. never really the intention, you know, that's, what's great about it is it just kind of happened. So, and now it's grown into something a lot bigger than we kind of ever intended. And um, now we're really doing our best to continue that and, and keep giving back. So that's, you know, there's a certain point, haven't been in the industry for a long time. Um, I, you know, some of the new folks that come in and, and it's still all about, it seems to be in some cases, Oh, it's all about me. It's all about me. What, what's, what can I get out of this? And then you reach a certain point where you realize, and, and I think maybe appreciate what the outdoor industry has given to you. And that's when you start giving back to the industry and to the resource. And that's always nice to see. And, and I've heard, you know, throughout the industry, I've heard a lot of really good things about you and your family in regards to that. Well, I appreciate it that we, uh, that's definitely been a goal of ours. It's never been about us. We've never, never cared about that. And you know, that that's just not who we are. It's never, um, been appeasing to us at all. So, we're just fortunate to get to do what we do and, and work with great people. Um, you know, we do a lot of cool things out of it too. For instance, we have our youth camp uh, is actually this week. We actually just did our, the third women's camp we've ever done. And so we had um, 18 women here, 10 of which had never shot a bow. And then five of which had uh, left with a bow. So we're making new bow hunters and then we're hoping to do the same this week. We have, 50 kids coming, which is always entertaining <laughs> and 20 of which I know for a fact do not have bows. Um, cause we'll be setting them up with camp equipment. So, um, there'll be all, all a bunch of them will be shooting bear cruisers for the week and we're going to do our best to make them into hunters as well. So what's the ages on, on your kids camps? 12 to 17. Oh, you just missed it, Dylan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dylan, Dylan can come help. He can be camp cook or something like that. There you uh, go. I can make oh, some mean frozen waffles, dude. <laughs> oh, you would not believe what kids want to eat, man. Like, our, we have an awesome, awesome volunteers that help us out, and they'll make, like, this awesome pancakes and stuff. And, and these kids, they're like, do you guys have any Pop-Tarts? And we're like, dude, you got eggs and bacon and stuff, and you want a Pop-Tart? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. You know, I'll eat Pop-Tarts in the truck because I just don't have time while I'm out scouting or something to have bacon and eggs. But if you had the option of bacon and eggs, I can't imagine wanting a Pop-Tart. Now, yeah. my, 
my kids are the same way, man. Like we'll have like steaks for dinner or something and they'll be like, I want a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And so my right. wife figured that out, but I'll continue to cook steaks knowing they won't eat them. That way I get more steak. And so she's like, why are you buying that many? The kids aren't going to eat them. And I'm like, because then I get what they don't eat. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's a great idea there. So you're saying it's not all about the kids at your house. I, but 100%. Yeah. See, and that's, that's why you don't have a TV show, Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> my kids, my kids, man, my kids are buttheads, dude. Uh, <laughs> I, that's the nicest way. I, my wife called me upstairs. I've got a 3D range in my backyard. My wife calls me upstairs yesterday, and, and uh, she says, Dylan, you got to come look at this. And I'm like, what? And so I walk up and look out the back door, and my son was, he's only two, about to be three. He was buck naked riding my hog target like a horse. And so I was actually kind of proud. I'm like, yeah, that way, dude. And uh, and then she calls me back over, and he was sitting there taking a whiz on my antelope target. And I'm like, all right, now I'm mad. <laughs> He's marking his territory. Oh, man. Exactly. Your hands full there. Yeah, he's nuts, yeah, that's dude. Funny. That's funny. That's good. So, so tell us, uh, here's a question for you. Of the stuff that you've measured for people, what's been kind of the the most memorable or anything like super exotic or just, just crazy that was? I had the uh, majority of them have been whitetails, but I had a whitetail that had 30-inch beans. Wow. And so I've measured, I've been fortunate to measure some couple really big deer, several like in that 200 range. But uh, for whatever reason, when you asked that question, the very first thing that came to my mind is, was that deer? Because the beams was, it was just ridiculous. I mean, it just went on and on and on forever. And I don't, I don't know that I've ever seen another deer that had 30 inch beams. I measured it like four times because I thought I was messing it up. Yeah. So, but. And that deer, that deer was a 200 some inch deer, he had like 15 inch G2s. He was a pretty incredible whitetail. Wow. Where'd he come from? Iowa. Iowa. Yeah. Yeah. They get some big ones over there. Yeah. Yeah. We have some big deer here. I'm and originally then, from Montana. I'm in Iowa now. So. Okay. Yep. I, I can't seem to find him that big, but everybody else does. Yeah. See, my thing is, I'm sure I'm hunting where there's big ones. I just can't get let the little ones go. Right. That happened to me on, on an elk hunt last year. I was, I was sitting there and I, I told myself, nothing but a branch bowl because I only had a few days. And then out pops this five point. I'm like, ooh, that's a branch bowl. Okay. And then all of a sudden he's he's there and he's expiring and and his dad walked out. And I'm like, oh. Well, there's my Pope and Young Bull. That's why these guys are getting in the books is because they're letting the little ones go. So Yeah. Well, I'm right there with you. I can do it with deer, but elk, it's a different story. Now, I will tell you, I was really fortunate, and I drew a tag in Wyoming this year, um, and I'm going to have to go probably, probably six or seven miles back, and I will be a little bit more conscientious of what I'm willing to pull the trigger on back there. <laughs> yeah so i i say that now and then i'll probably have a raghorn come screaming in and and shoot him and then just regret it later i guess yeah six six miles is a long trek four times yeah it is i've yeah doing a lot of cardio so hopefully that will help me out and the best advice i ever got <clears throat> i had been talking with jim willems um who is one of our past presidents and and I was showing him pictures of this giant, and uh, and I'm like, yeah, he's my target buck. Well, I ended up killing a buck, and so I texted him the picture, and I'm like, not the big one. Uh, and what I meant by that was not the one that I was showing you pictures of. But his response to me was, if you shot it, it was big enough. And, and that's always resonated with me, you know. Um, that's always like stayed with me that I don't have to, I don't have to justify it to anybody else. If I shot it, then it's big enough for me. Yeah, absolutely. It's a trophy yeah. to me. Oh, and I feel the same way. I'm just saying if it's six miles back, um, yeah. I'm going to try to be a little more selective. And then if I, you know, have one of those bulls come in and, and I can't contain myself and I shoot it, I won't regret shooting the bull. I'll just regret the pack out. <laughs> yeah. That's where you just need some buddies. Hey, what are you guys doing? C come on over, you know. I Yeah, I actually have a, um, a buddy out there in his – um, wife is big into rodeo with her two daughters. And so I'm really, really trying to convince her to 
drop me off with horses. So Ooh, I'm still cool. working on that one. That would be, yeah. especially if I kill one, it would be pretty all right to have a horse team come and help me pull an elk out. That'd be it. way better than my back. See, that's, I'm thinking, I don't mind walking six or seven miles in, but I don't want to walk six or seven miles out three or four times to get a bull out. That's a right. lot. I mean, people, um, I, I talked to some people, and I don't think they realize how big a, a mature bull elk is. I mean, you're, you're not just going to, you know, grab a horn and, and start dragging. No. Well, and if you're going to do like what I'm going to do and, and stay back there, you're probably going to have at least one trip of just your gear, gear. Yeah. You know, tent, sleeping bag, bow, all that stuff. And then if it's a bull, you're going to keep the hide on too. I mean, you're talking the head, the cape in the, in the head is one trip itself. Yeah. So yeah, it's, I think I might have to figure out how to get a horse team or something to make sure that I can get the elk out of there in time in case it's, um, you know, one of those real warm Septembers. Yeah. Uh, so I'm still in the planning stages of that though. Uh, but I'm might have to do a few test runs and see if I'll be able to make it back there, how long it would take me to be able to get it out. Cause that's the last thing I want to do is, you know, lose any meat. Yeah. Yeah. That it's, it's getting in isn't, isn't the problem, but man, once you're successful, that getting it out is a whole nother story. Yeah. I, uh, Last year, it's going to be drastic for me because last year I was fortunate and um, hunted in New Mexico, and we were actually got my bull out whole. The first time I've ever been able to do that, we got the whole thing in the in the back of a ranger, and so I'm going to get to go from having my whole elk packed out to having to pack one six miles. So, yeah, well, welcome to the real world. I know, right? Yeah, yeah. It's I, I grew up with the packing it out thing. You know, you you I did you made too. sure the yeah you made sure the pack boards were in the truck before your before your bow. And uh, I got to hunt elk a little bit at a at a place with a buddy of mine. And like you say, one of the nicest parts about it was that you could get pretty much anywhere we hunted with with an ATV. So if you got a bull down. You know, you could get something close enough to at least drag it out where you could, you know, process it and, you know, closer to the rig. So right. that made it nice. Yeah, that was the first time I ever got to do that. Every other one, we've had to pack them out. The first elk hunt I ever even went on, my dad thought it was a good idea to take me six miles back in Montana on bikes. And I was about 13 years old and a pudgy little kid. And he we're like halfway up and he's telling me he's like come on this usually only takes me like an hour and a half and if you've ever seen pictures of my dad or anything he's a uh, in pretty good shape and for a plumpy little 13 year old kid <laughs> not fun yeah you know i might have been 13 the last time i could have ridden a bike six miles yeah he if like i said if you see my dad when it came to anything physical wise he was a uh, he was capable of it. I think he misjudged my capabilities by a long shot. Yeah. So we we did almost kill an elk back there, though. That was cool. That was all on public ground. We had a bull come in, and that was the first time we learned, you know, really how good their noses were. It was a yeah. real open meadow, and we'd moved up past this tree probably 60 or 70 yards and realized we actually saw these two elk, and they were already coming to our calls. And so we had no other cover to go to, so we backed up. And this bull starts coming. He gets to about 60 yards right where we were, the furthest port point that we were sitting. And he just slams on the brakes and freaks out and runs away. And we were trying to figure out what happened. We're, we're like, what the heck? Because, you know, he didn't he didn't see us, didn't hear us, wasn't like putting his head up or anything like that. It was just like he hit a brick wall and, and freaked out. And then we realized later that uh, he had smelled where we were standing. And that's what yeah. we really got a good understanding of how amazing their noses really are that's yeah it's a lot of people underestimate the the nose on an elk so i've i've oh, done yeah. that i was in a i was in a ground blind one time and and i'd been hunting there for a few days and i knew there were elk in the area and sure enough here here this cow comes off of this little sage ridge and she's walking down and she literally gets to the the point where I had walked in just exactly like you're talking about. And man, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't 
an alarm. It wasn't like an alarm went off where the head goes up and she looks around. It She got to that point and just took off like a shot. Didn't wait, didn't care what was around, just left. So Yeah, they don't yeah. mess around on that kind of stuff. When they think that there's something wrong, they're out of there. Yeah. Well, what do you have coming up this next season? What's on your list of, of places to go? Well, so that Wyoming tag is going to be the biggest thing. Um, I'm really – it's a – pretty tough tag to draw it takes about eight points so i'm pretty excited about that there's a it's going to be public but it's a really tough tag won't be much pressure i don't think and and some really big bulls so i've been uh getting myself on the stair stepper and doing a ton of training to try to get ready for that uh, you know jason as i was telling you earlier that's the one animal that i'm still really trying to break that pope and young threshold like you were talking i just when I have a bull screaming at me, I don't really care how big he is. My heart just gets pounding and I can't, I can't not shoot him. And, uh, so I don't regret any of those, but I just need a bigger one to come in first. Yeah. And, amen. Right. If the, if the big ones would come in first all the time, I would kill big bulls every year. Yeah. But, uh, they don't seem to like to do that. So no, no uh, the guys that consistently kill the big ones, it's cause they don't shoot the little ones. Right. And I, I, you think I'd figure that out by now? Yeah. Well, and I and I'm well aware of that. It's just the whole doing that part that is really difficult for me. Um, so I'm hoping this year, my like, I've talked to a buddy of mine that's hunted this unit, you know, and I'm telling him like a 300 inch bull, and I would just be over the moon. And he's like, "You're not shooting a 300 inch bull back there." So we'll see if he's right. But I'm telling you right now, if I have a 300 inch bull inside of 40 yards he's getting an arrow without a doubt so yeah um but so a lot of planning for that my dad got really fortunate and he actually drew an oryx tag in new mexico oh those are fantastic yeah so he's going to try and do that with a bow and he's been getting some pictures and videos of the terrain and i don't really know how he's going to do it because it looks really difficult maybe water or something I don't know. So if any of your listeners have any tips on how to kill Oryx with a bow in New Mexico, we Jim would love to them. Yeah, Jim's oh, killed a couple of them. Oh, Jim? in New Mexico? Yep. Yes. And how do you do it? I don't know. I'll have to get you in touch with them. That'd be great. Because any tips on that? I mean, we're way outside of our realm there. So, Pretty uh, sure you did it with a recurve, too. Really? Yeah. He's just trying to one-up everybody then, huh? I guess so. Man, that's... <laughs> That's my struggle with Pope and Young is like, man, I shot a decent, you know, white tail with my compound. And then you got guys like Jim Willems and, and Frank Noska. And these guys are like, dude, I've completed the super slam three times with a recurve. And I'm like, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah, I, it's I, awesome I, hearing the stories though. It, I don't compare thing. myself to any of those guys. I just compare myself to me last year. And I'm like, okay, I'm a little bit better shot than I was last year. So all I need to be is in, in the right spot, and I'll be okay. But I don't want to compare myself to any of those guys. And is that with a recurve or your compound? Uh, I, no, man, I'm a compound. I, I'm not I'm not worthy of the recurve crew. See, I would – I've really thought about, you know, trying to give the whole recurve deal uh, and in a shot, and I think that it would be awesome. But the only problem with it is I feel like if I'm going to do – if I'm going to go to the recurve, like I got to fully commit, you know, like I got to hang up the compound and I just feel like the second that I do that, you know, I'm going to have, then I will have a 380 bullet, like 35 yards or, or just somewhere is just out of range. That's what uh, I right. Did. And so it just makes me scared to, to make that jump. But I think one day, maybe after I finally kill a Pope and young bull, I'll, I'll try and make that jump, but I got nothing but respect for those guys. I'm actually yeah. in the middle of that switch right now, and that's that's 100% what I had to do. And somebody said, well, you don't want to shoot your compound anymore? I said, no, I do. Like, I want to shoot my compound, but, like, I don't have the mental capacity to, like, practice enough with a recurve and be good and shoot my compound. So, like, I don't even get to shoot my compound right now because, like, it takes everything in my brain to, to shoot the recurve accurately and, and successfully. Um, so it's it's been a struggle, but... I'll tell you this, there's more, way more gratification in it. Um, you know, somebody told me, well, when you shoot your compound, you're either shooting good and you're, and you're happy or you're shooting bad and you're, and you're mad. 
but with a recurve, like you're shooting bad and you're satisfied or you're shooting good and you're just euphorically high. And, uh, and, and that's really what it's been. You know, you shoot your compound, you go out to 80 yards and hit the bullseye and you're like, all right, I'm good. You shoot the recurve 40 shots just to get five in the bullseye. And you're like, man, this is so awesome. You know? Yeah. That's, I feel like it, if I just if I tried going back and forth between the two, I just think I would really pick up some like a, the bad habits with both. You know, anything yeah. that I'm supposed to be doing with my bow or with my compound, um, I think I feel like I would then be trying to do it with my recurve, and then what I'm supposed to be doing with my recurve, I'd be doing it with my compound, and I would just be a, a mess on both instead of mastering one. So, but you know, I look back to we keep a log of everything that we have killed. And just put a little information in there with all of those. And sometimes I, I tell myself, you know, I'm being stupid for not just committing because like our average shot on our average shot on elk, and this is out of like around eighty to eighty to a hundred elk, I think, is like eighteen yards. Now that's with a collar and stuff. Uh and then deer, it's like twenty two. Or really, if I would just put in the time and get to the to the point where I could shoot to twenty five with the recurve. I'll probably be good, but I just feel like as soon as I do that, you know, I'm going to have the critter of a lifetime at, at 35 or something. And it's just going to eat at me for the rest of my life. You know, I, uh, actually just, just two weeks ago and, and it wasn't, it wasn't a bull or a buck. It was just a big hog. Uh, it was like a 250 pound hog and it was like 80 yards. And at first I told myself, I'm like, crap, if I just have my compound, but then I just had to remind myself like, you don't have your compound and you're not going to play that game. You know, like you're not going to kick yourself for having a recurve because, you know, it just takes discipline. So like, I just had to, I had to kick my, my brain out of that whole, like, well, if you just had your compound mentality, you know? Right. Well, and, and 80 yards is at least that's a long poke too, with a compound, you know, but uh, at a hog, you let her fly. <laughs> right. Hogs would be great to, you know, to be able to have something to kind of start with, I feel like, but we don't have many of those here. Praise the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. They that, are, they're fun to shoot, but dude, they will wreck. They will wreak havoc on, on crop grounds and, and everything else. Yeah, Our farmers have a hard enough time with the deer in Iowa. I don't think they would uh, take very kindly to hogs. Yeah. They're horrible, man. They really they can, are. They can do a t an amazing amount of damage in not very long. I've heard that from everybody that, you know, was around them for any length of period. They say that they're just pretty incredible on the amount of stuff that they can ruin in such a short period of time. Yeah. I've shot a couple in Texas. I, the one thing I didn't believe on those guys is, you know, they all tell you, uh, this guy told me, he's like, I was going to cape, I was going to cape my pig out or do something. And he's like, I don't think you're going to do that. And I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, you're going to destroy your knife. And I was like, no, I'll be fine. I've, you know, I've caped out elk and everything else with this. It'll be good. Well, that guy was right. They're like, it's like a freaking leather. Interesting. The, at least the ones that I cut. I mean, it didn't destroy my knife, but I had to sit there and sharpen it forever. Yeah. So, and they're tough. I shot one with my bow and I double lunged it and he was alive 40 minutes later, I mean, he wasn't able to do anything. He was laying down and on his side, but he was alive. And, you know, I gutted him just to confirm that there was a hole in both lungs and, and there was. So I don't know if he was managing to, you know, like plug the hole enough that it was giving him the capability to live a little longer or what. But I couldn't believe it when we walked up there. You know, my the guy I was with, he's like, uh, he's like, did you make a good shot? And I was like, oh, I crushed him. He, he'll be dead, I promise. And he's like... I don't know. You know, these things are just really tough. I was like, trust me, man, I put the arrow where it needed to. He's, he's dead. And then we get up there and he couldn't go anywhere. You know, he wasn't dangerous at that point, but he was, uh, he was still breathing. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. That's it's some, some animals just have that, that extra level of desire to, to live. I've seen that with elk where they're just hit amazingly well. And man, they can still go, a lot longer than you to ever think they could. Oh yeah. That's what, that's one of the things that I think is hardest to explain to people that haven't had the opportunity to hunt elk yet is, you know, a lot of guys that have hunted whitetails, they think, Oh, if you hit an elk, you know, just kind of just back out and, and you're going to find them. Sometimes that might be the case, but 
I've seen elk when they get hit and, and they just walk and they walk and they walk and, and sometimes, you know, it's miles before yeah. they die. So yeah, elk, I really, really encourage people like you want to make sure you're only taking high percentage shots. Absolutely. The, you know, you should be doing that ethically anyways, but elk, if you hit elk, in my opinion, your chances of finding them compared to like a whitetail is way less, you know, it's just yeah. such a country and they can cover so much ground. Absolutely. So, yeah. But other yeah. than that, we've got Iowa whitetails, which is always fun. Uh, so we'll be in Wyoming and then New Mexico for a little bit with the Oryx and my dad has an elk tag there too. Uh, I won't be on that one with him. Um, and so then we'll be deer here and I might be going to Ohio. I'm not sure on that one yet. Pretty hard to leave Iowa during, during November. You bet. So we'll see. Now, how many bucks can you take in, in Iowa? You can, you could technically kill three. You can get one with your bow tag and then you can get one with either, a. I guess you could tech. There's some laws that are, we have in Iowa, we have a shotgun season and you can party hunt during that shotgun season. So you could use somebody else's tag during that season. So you could really shoot however many bucks is in your party. Um, but just to generalize, you get one with your bow, you can get one either shotgun season or late muzzleloader. And then if you're a landowner, you can get another one as well. So you could get up to three. Okay. Yep. So, uh, usually I, I'm not a landowner and, um, so I usually kill one with my bow and then I've been trying to really trying to figure out the whole muzzleloader thing. Um, and we just, our weather the last few years in Iowa, if you get really cold weather and you got the right food sources in the late season, it's deadly. I mean, it's really, really good. Uh, and I had a deer that I was trying to kill this year that wasn't really staying on a food source. He was going to a food source, but not till after dark and, um, on a different property. So I was trying to catch him in a transition area. And the one time I, I had him pegged, the farmer drove up behind us to feed his cows. And so that ruined that. And I never saw that deer again. So hopefully he comes back this year. How, how long have you been watching that particular buck? Um, three years. Okay. So, and he's not a, he's not a monster. He's, he's a monster to a lot of people. He's probably 150 to 60 inch deer, but he's super heavy. I just have a weird thing for mass. I just love heavy deer. Yeah. So I've been chasing him pretty hard. Um, but I'm hoping this next year, he, I don't really know how old he is. He just kind of popped up. He's probably like five or six. So I would think he'd still be a pretty good buck. I killed one other deer, um, that was eight and a half. And that deer, his best year was six. And then after that, he started going downhill, but he was still okay. a good deer when I killed him, but nothing like he was. Yeah. Yeah. So what is your favorite? If you had to pick one thing to hunt, what would it be? Elk without a doubt. Okay. I mean, elk are, to me, there's just something different about being on the mountain and, and hearing a bull bugle and the way that those big bulls carry themselves. When we lived in Montana, we hunted a lot near the breaks. I don't know if you're familiar with the breaks at all, but, uh, they're known for big bulls and we've seen some bulls that are just, you know, any, I mean, a, to me, a 330 bull is really big, but when you start seeing those 350, 360 type bulls, they just carry themselves different. There's just something about them that is a lot more majestic um, than other animals, in my opinion. And seeing them in the mountains and watching them scream and chase cows and calling one in, there's just nothing else like it. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people that would would be in the elk camp for that answer. I think so too. But there's a, I'm telling you, man, there, whitetail guys are die hard. There is yes. a lot of guys too that when it comes to whitetails, that's just what they live for. And I, I like hunting whitetails. I mean, they're a lot of fun, but, uh, I get antsy. And so I have a hard time sitting all day. You know, people are always ask me, how, how often do you all do all day sits? And I'm like, maybe once or twice a year, if I get stuck in the stand, I just can't sit there that long. I got to go get lunch or something. Yeah. It's, I think it takes a different mentality to do the all day thing. I call them bell to bells going, you know, light to dark all day long. And I've got some buddies that, man, they'll do that. 
for for whatever it is. I'll sit out there trying to shoot a green wing teal bell to bell. And for me, I, I'm I think I can give it so much, and then you know after that, it ha- I have to have the confidence that something could happen. Like if you have a right. reasonable expectation that you're going to see, you know, whatever your quarry is, you know, deer, elk, ducks, I can sit there for a long time if I, you know, have the confidence that something's coming. But if I don't have that confidence, man, I start getting antsy as well. Oh, I hear you. I mean, and elk, I can do it. Not, not really sitting though. You know, I mean, I take a nap midday or whatever, but it's because I'm moving around and to all the guys that can sit, all day, you know, more power to them. I, and I've had times where, you know, I'm seeing enough deer that I won't get out. But I just, for me, it, I just have a hard time being stuck there and, and not being able to move very far, even if it's just getting out for 30 minutes or an hour to grab some lunch. It makes me feel a lot better. So, I, to me, I don't want to, I'd rather not lose the fun of it. And sitting day, dark to dark, sounds like a job almost. It's, you know, some of these guys that almost, it's it's more intense than what they probably give their job, I bet. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think all of us are in that, in that cal, in that respect. But when it just hunting wise, I just, for deer, I just can't do it. I mean, maybe one day I'll, when I'm older or something, I'll be able to sit there all day and really enjoy it. But, uh, cause I have no problem, you know, getting out for 30 minutes or whatever and, and getting right back in the stand. It's just seem there's just something in my head that I can't stay in the in the one spot for twelve hours or whatever it is. Yeah, that's a long time just sitting. Oh yeah. Maybe if I had a big enough deer, I yeah. could do it. But not yet. What yeah. if, what would you qualify yourselves if you had to pick one animal? Dylan? Uh I'm the whitetail guy, man. I'm that guy that's just ate up with whitetails. Are you an all day sitter? No, 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 no. No? No, I just, again, man, my my ADD kicks in, and uh, I'll do more harm than good if I try to sit all day. Um, now, I have before, and I will. Uh, I mean, if it's middle of the rut, and you've got a cold snap, and it's dumping snow or something, and it's just one of those days where the stars are aligning, I will. Um, but I'm not one of those guys that, that just look for excuses to do it. You know, I'm not one of those guys that just says, well, I've got, I've got this Saturday free. I'm going to go sit all day. No, that, that ain't me. Um, I don't, I, I just can't do it, man. I'm just, I'm just too, uh, fidgety. And, and again, I'll just do more harm than good if I try it without the conditions being perfect. Yeah. I'm right there with you. Same camp. Yes. Yeah, I think. Uh, the politically correct answer to that question for this this program would be bow hunting elk. Even though, man, I'll tell you what: when you get on a good field in Alberta and and you start, you know, you start pushing limits of white geese up there at fifty again, uh, that's pretty tough to beat for me. Wait, we're gonna we're comparing birds and big game. <laughs> Hey, so you know what? I like to shoot, and I thought about that the other day because oh you know, man, if, wait, if, what podcast is this, Dylan? I know I, that's why. That's why I answered the the politically correct answer first. I said, okay, it's going to be L. But man, I'll tell you what: there's something about just going out with a couple buddies and and you know dropping 150 birds in an afternoon. There's just something nice about that. Jason, right? Jason's a bird hunter at heart. You'll learn that pretty quickly. Spend any time around him. He's a bird hunter at heart. I'm telling you, you well, know what it used to be? You know, when I was younger, you know, I started bow hunting before they had range finders and all this fancy stuff you guys take for granted. And I think back then, you know, running around the, the hills there in, in Oregon, chasing blacktails and elk and everything, you know, I got to shoot more because I'd be like, oh, yeah, that's about 45 yards. And then you'd shoot and then you'd be like, hmm, that was way low. Apparently, that was 55 yards. And so you just had a little more, uh, you know, I got to shoot more. I lost more arrows, but, you know, I got to shoot more. And so it appeased me. Now I, I don't have that excuse anymore. I have some good news for you, Jason. You're never going to have to worry about me competing with you for birds. You can have all of them. <laughs> okay. I'm, you know, I got my buddy Dave is like that. He's like, I, you know, he just, he's, 
he loves the big game and he's a he's been a he's the one who actually introduced me to Pope and Young gosh I think back in 1990 and that's he's the same way he just he would do anything to go hunt you know for for 14 days to maybe or maybe not kill a, a mule deer and uh I just for man I sure like to shoot I like to pull well, out the trigger. I, I won't I will I can say that I have I won't knock it until I've tried it because I have tried it. I we went to Arkansas three years in a row and duck hunting. You know what was supposedly supposed to be this really good place, and other than the cinnamon rolls in the blind, it just didn't do anything for me. And so then you know this other guy told us he's like, no, you're gonna love it. You got to come geese hunting with us. You're just gonna love it. There's gonna be you know thousands of birds, and you're gonna get to shoot a whole bunch. You're gonna melt your chokes. And so I gave it one more shot and we went to Kansas and to geese hunt with these guys. And it was like negative 20, you know, I mean, it was stupid cold and we're sitting in these blinds. I think it's, you probably know better than I do. They dig them out and it's like cement blinds that they put under the ground. Yeah. Pit blinds. Yeah. Okay. So they had a bunch of these pit blinds and I mean, it'd probably been two or three hours and we'd shot like two or three geese and it's like negative 10. I started a fire in there. I mean, I I had a little fire in there, and the guy was like, man, what are you doing? You can't do that. You're sending those birds a, a smoke signal. And I was like, this is survival. I do not care <laughs> about your birds anymore, man. We shot yeah. two two geese, and it's negative 20. You, okay, you can uh, forget now, your birds, man. Okay, <laughs> just for the record, com- comparing duck hunting in Arkansas and a two-goose day to you know elk hunting where where you're getting multiple that, that's not really the same like the hunts that you're describing to me would be like comparing to say road hunting for i don't know ground squirrels that's now, like i've got to take this personal i've got to take this personal because i grew up in arkansas and now i live in kansas and uh <laughs> and so i've i've experienced some great duck hunting and, and geese hunting in both states now i will say this you probably went to Stuttgart and they probably talked it up to you like it was just the duck hunting capital of the world. Stuttgart is overrated and overhunted. It used to be phenomenal. Now it's real tough. And, is that in the Golden Triangle or whatever they call it? Um, I don't know. Okay, well, because supposedly we were in the, the Golden Triangle. Yeah. I don't know. I've hunted ducks all over all over the country, all over North America, and I've hunted in Arkansas a number of times, never had a good one. Never. Yeah. So I, I'm i not sure. I know you've tried it, but uh, I, I, it, to me, it doesn't sound like you've, I mean, when you go out for an afternoon and you and two of your buddies, you know, drop 180 birds in 90 minutes, that's a little bit more. Now, if no. Jason was a good friend, he would say, Warren, why don't you let me take you and show you what, what waterfowl hunting is all about? Hey, you, you never know. That might just have, We might be doing our next podcast from, from the prairies, man. Uh, you're going to have to work really, really, really hard to ever get me going on, on a bird hunt again. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, it's maybe, maybe you guys are right, and I just haven't seen the right one. But, and, I, and I do enjoy the camaraderie, camaraderie of it. I've, that was always fun. But... Uh, they just don't do anything for me. Like I have a, a duck and a goose are pretty much the same to me. They're a bird. Um, and so I pretty well decided at that point, I was like, it's just not in my heart. I'm just, I just was not bred to be a bird hunter. <laughs> yeah. Bird hunters are a different breed. Like they're, they, they are, it seems like the guys that are, they are diehard bird hunters. They are a different breed. I mean, we talk whitetail hunters being a different breed and they are, but, but duck hunters, man, they are, a complete different breed. I mean, you got guys, man, I've had buddies go to bed at, at two, two sleep on the boat docks and, and wake up at four just to go out and get the best spot on the river and throw out, you know, two dozen decoys, three dozen decoys. And I'm like, man, and they do this like a hundred days a year. And I'm like, dude, how do you even live? Like, there's no way I could do that. Yeah. I'd never do that either. Cause my boat leaves the dock at midnight. <laughs> Yeah, the, you're, there, exactly. you're there at 2 a.m. You're two hours late. Sorry. Exactly. Exactly. What are you doing during that time period? Oh, you get up the river, set the decoys, and then you take a nap in the boat. Crank up the break, heat. Breakfast meeting. Nice That's what I used to do. Yeah. You guys are nuts. <laughs> so, 
But no, it's, uh, I'll tell you what, there is something special about, I, you know, I haven't done the whitetail hunting that, that either of you guys have done, but uh, the elk, that's something that's that's pretty special. Well, I, you, if you haven't experienced in, uh, November in the Midwest in a good spot, <clears throat> it's unreal. I think residents take it for granted a little bit because, you know, they know a lot of the deer and they know the age class of them, but when you sit in a stand and you have, you know, several hundred and thirty to hundred and fifty plus type deer come by you in one day and chasing does around and um, you know, going nuts on a cool November morning, it's it's pretty dang cool. Oh, they absolutely take it for granted because when I moved here from Arkansas, um, I experienced a rut like I've never experienced before. And uh my mind was just blown and they were like, Man, what? And I'm like, dude, this don't happen down south. Like this this doesn't happen in Arkansas. You don't get ruts like this. And uh they were like, Well, what do you mean? And I'm like, I mean, you just don't. It's just different. And uh but yeah, you're right, man. I mean, just seeing seeing deer I mean, seeing deer you've never seen before, man. I saw probably four deer this year that I had literally never caught on camera, never seen on the hoof, never even knew they existed. But, you know, November comes around and you have different deer every day. It's just crazy. Right. Well, and, you know, growing up in Montana, I think they they absolutely um, take for granted the size of the deer. Because in Montana, to us, like 140-inch whitetail, was, that was a big deer. You know, there wasn't very many deer. There was lots and lots of 120, maybe 130-type deer. But 140-inch deer in Montana was a was a pretty good buck unless you were over like on the Milk River or something like that. And when we moved to Iowa, it was actually 2012, which if you guys remember the one year that I think mo a lot of the country got just slammed with the EHD, it was the summer after that. And our neighbors and everybody else was telling us how, you know, awful the deer hunting was going to be now and, and how much it's killed all of these deer. And we were driving around in the summer and, and, Looking back now, it's not quite what it was compared to what it's gotten back to. But seeing 150-inch deer and some 160-inch deer around, we were like, what are you guys complaining about? Your deer are still huge, you know, but they were used to seeing 170 and 180-type deer. Wow. Yeah, that it was um, pretty incredible to see what they were comparing it to and saying it was bad. I was like, this is bad. I can't imagine what good is like. Yes, yeah, so some people, the perspective on some of that is definitely skewed for for folks. Right. Yep. But it's just like, you know, then a Midwest guy going out west and, you know, guys that live in Montana or Wyoming, you know, they don't understand how good they have it either. You know, it's just, just your perspective and what you're around all the time. Absolutely. All right. So, so we're not going to convert you into bird hunting, which that's okay. More for me. Yep, you can have them. You got them all wrapped up. <laughs> well, what uh, what other kind of stuff do you do? So, so elk, whitetail. What what else is on your list? A big mule deer is next, and I was okay. gonna try and I was gonna try and do that um, this year, but uh, doing that contingent if I drew Wyoming or not, and I did draw Wyoming for elk, so I'm gonna keep my focus on elk for this year. But after that. Um, my first deer ever was a mule deer and they just they're just a cool animal to me and and i'm kind of like dylan i have a hard time sitting still sometimes so spot and stock is really uh i really enjoy that um and so the next thing i would like to do is kill a big mule deer with my bow and to me a big mule deer is like anything that's 150 160 plus uh i would be ecstatic about so I'm going to have to start planning for that one because I think that's going to be next. There you go. So what earlier you mentioned you had some whitetails and, and pronghorns in the book. What else do you have in, in P&Y? Uh, a bear. Okay. Bear, whitetail, antelope, no elk. We talked about that one. Um, that's probably it. Okay. A couple antelope and a couple deer. And then the one bear. The one bear was... 400 pounds and his skull was 19 and three or something like that. I don't Very recall nice. exactly over my, off the top of my head. I remember we thought it was going to be like mid 20, like 20 and a half or something like that. But, uh, 
he just had a ton of fat on his head. And so it wasn't quite as big as we thought it was going to be, but still 19 inch skull, you know, on a bear is pretty good. This, that might, was in be, this might be a dumb question, but I'll ask the dumb questions. As a measure, do you get to measure your own animals or do you got to find somebody else to measure them? You got to find somebody else to measure them. Okay. Makes sense. There's a pretty, pretty good community of measurers. So that's not too difficult. Boy, if you could measure your own, there, there'd be, we'd have people lined up out the door to be measures if that was the case. Oh, yeah, you would. <laughs> and, and there'd probably be a lot more entries too. Oh man, that's, you know, we'd have a, a lot more 200 inch deer, I think. Yeah. Yeah. When, Some of the deer I've seen scored, I think there would be, uh, the record books would be rewrote. That's for sure. Yeah. It's, um, it's interesting because you, you see people talk and you, you know, we mentioned perspective earlier and you get online and, and you see all these people shooting these monster bucks everywhere you go. And, and I, I grade on a total curve. It's like, if, you, if there's a guy there and he has an official score form and it says his buck is two, 200 inches, then that's a 200 inch buck. And if I've got a guy who says his buck is 200 inches and I'm like, you know what? Yeah. 160 is a nice buck. If it's 200, you'd, you'd have it scored because you just want to know. Yeah. But. Well, and that's one thing I hate seeing too is you see all these guys that post stuff on social media and everything and, and the score police always come out and they're always telling them, oh, that deer's not this or that deer's not that. And it's like, man, you guys, uh, you really don't, it, there's no reason to do it. And, and they truly don't understand what they're looking at a lot of times. I mean, if some of them, if you, one, pictures can be really deceiving. We all know that. Very, yeah. But two, if you understand what you're looking at and how to add, you know, like if you have a really good under, understanding and you say, okay, that's a 24 inch beam and his G1s are seven and his G2s are 10 and his G3s are 11, you know, that the guy's probably close. And you have all these, like the amount of people that I have been able to inform, um, you know, they think non-typical that that means that everything on the deer that is not a typical point is going to be deducted, um, you know, and they don't understand that it's off the, the typical frame. And then those non-typical points are added in and they're like, Oh, well, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yet you got people out there that are telling everybody else, you don't know what you're doing. That's not right. Or uh, it's just, that's the one thing that about social media, I wish it wasn't so judgmental. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, anytime it says, oh, that's not right, just say, which page of the manual are you referring to? Right. And, and oh, that'll end that conversation. And there is, as you know, there's there's so many um, little rules and, and things that can make a, a big difference on an animal's rack that you really do need to know. I, I still have lots of times where I'll refer to the rule book and make sure that I'm going to do it right because it'll make a, a fairly big difference on what the total score comes out to be. Yes. It's um, having been able to attend panel the last couple times has been an eye opener because it's, you know, as a long time hunter, you just think, oh, well, you know, I can slap a tape on and I can get pretty close. Oh, no, 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 no. These guys know the rules inside and out. And even the, the very best measures in the world, which we have a panel, even these guys have their their measuring manual out. And some of these guys measure hundreds and hundreds of animals a year. First thing they do when they measure an animal, even, you know, especially a whitetail, these whitetail guys, first thing they do is open their manual to the whitetail pages. And then they start in on this book. And it's, it is so impressive to see those, those true professionals in action because they know exactly what they're doing and they still double check. Yes. And well, and that's what you expect out of somebody at, at that high of a level, right? You know, um, especially with whitetails, because they're so creative that they're they can be really difficult to score. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's impressive to see those guys work. It's it's truly, it's truly impressive. And we had a uh, Dylan. Do you remember that buck that uh, we had a a, a whitetail that just scored off the charts? And it came in, and it's I think it's a top 10 deer. Doesn't have a, a big, it's not like a prototypical, wow, top 10 ever whitetail buck, but it's just got 
points everywhere. And they measured this. So the, the original measure measured it. And then we had two teams at panel, two teams of three that each measured this buck. And Dylan, do you remember what that thing scored? It, it was a lot of points. And the moral of the story is the original measure and the two um, panels all came in, I think, within four-eighths on this this buck. I'm not sure I could have gotten within – I mean, I, I have no idea, but I would have expected, man, if you could get within 10 inches, that would be impressive. And these guys came within just a couple of eights. So yeah, it was – That's incredible, especially when you have those deer that have that many points and there's so many things that could be ruled – you know, differently, very easily. Not that they should be, but just easy, simple things that could make it really easy to make a mistake. Like, I, and that's one thing I noticed after going to classes. Um, you know, I thought I had a pretty good understanding of how to score animals before. Well, when I after class, I went home and I rescored all my stuff, and and quite a few of them grew because I wasn't even taking the main beam measurement from the right area. Um, yeah. You know, and I think that what I was do, I was going from the the back of the base of the antler, you know? Um, and so once I learned the, where the proper measurement was, I was like, well, man, I've been cutting a half inch or more off of all of my deer. Um, and so then I, after class, I found myself like, you can't look at a deer or an animal and not at quiz yourself. Like, how would I score that one? I remember when that, the new world record out of Illinois, I was like, I, I would just call somebody to help me with that one because that looks like it would be rather difficult to to score by yourself. Yeah. Well, and that's, I think these guys that are really good, none of them are too proud to reach out and, and ask for help. You know, it's, it's funny when you have, you know, you're sitting at panel and you have some of these guys who are the best measurers in the world and they'll still say, Hey, Ken, come take a look at this. What do you think on this? And I'm like, wow, that's how, how good do you have to be at something where you're still willing to ask someone else for, for their input? I'm like, that's just impressive to me. Yeah. That's awesome guys that are willing to do that and, and remain that humble. Yeah. Cause the most important thing is that they get it right. Not that, that they're right, but that the score is correct. So right. very impressive. No, yeah. I, uh, I actually have the pleasure of being a part of the member group on Facebook and, uh, and you see guys all the time. They'll say, hey, I need help with this whitetail. Somebody give me a call, you know, and it's just really cool. It's cool to see that community. Without a Absolutely. doubt. Yep. Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you what, Warren, one of the questions that we ask every one of our guests on the show is what is one piece of equipment that you take with you on a hunt that might be a little bit um, non-traditional, we'll say? What's what's something in your pack that you wouldn't expect everybody out there to have, but you wouldn't want to go without? Protein balls. <laughs> uh, good snacks, but uh, on a serious note, it varies a little bit, you know, for each of the hunts that I'm on. Um, that's a good question. I got to think of something that I would always have that I don't think most other people would have with them. I've never even considered a question like that because everything I, to me has always been something normal. Um, probably gaff tape. So gaff tape, if you do any filming, it's something that is, it's just basically a different type of type of tape that is really, really sticky so that you can use it to tape on like a mic to your clothes. And I found that it works really good um, to tape on things and it's a lot more quiet when you rip it. And so I've had times actually where, uh, you know, if I'm somewhere where there's cactus or anything, I'll just take a little bit of that tape and I'll put it on my palms, um, just to be able to walk across the, or, you know, crawl across stuff. Um, I'll also use it anytime I have something else that I need to tape up or, uh, stands. Sometimes I've, I've taken my stands before and I've, put a little piece of tape on each of the steps and it makes it a lot easier to grip because it just has a little bit of a grit to it. Um, and I've just found that there, I've always had enough uses for it that I just started keeping it in my pack. So I wouldn't think that most people probably have gaff tape with them. I like it. 
All right. Add it to the list, Dylan. That's a lot like our tip or our uh, our item from uh, from Remy Warren with the tarp. Those, those yes. kind of, kind of two of the same, you know. Very useful. Regular everyday items that you use in the woods all the time. Yeah. What was he using with his? Uh, a tarp. He he said he always carries a tarp, and you know he'll lay it out for cleaning or shelter or or, or not a tarp. It was trash uh, bags. Trash bags. Yeah, big yeah. big construction trash bags. He'll always have one with him, and he can you know cut it open to to lay meat out on or and he went through a, a ton of different things he uses it for but he always has a a construction grade trash bag with him yeah that's a good one i like that one i bet you get some interesting answers to that we do our favorite's bacon it's still bacon <laughs> i'm telling you yeah and it's you know when when the guy who just shot a you know amazing new world record velvet mule deer you know, when he's giving you tips and, and he says bacon, then the guy like myself, uh, he has to appreciate that, that bacon was his answer. Cooked bacon, he's keeping it with him? I think Was it dehydrated or was it just, it must have been dehydrated bacon or something? I think it's just that that uh, ready to ready to cook or ready to eat bacon that you can buy yeah. from Sam's. Yeah. And so he says, you know, when you're on a trip for a week or 10 days and in the back country, he says, you know, bacon's a nice treat. And I, you know, my whole point was when is bacon not a nice treat? Whether you're in the back country or the, you know, the kitchen, bacon's right. always, always the right thing. Yeah, bacon's always a nice treat. I would yeah. not, you probably unless wouldn't, would not have that, thought of having that in my pack. Unless you yeah. want kids at Warren's camp who just wants a Pop-Tart. Just want <laughs> There you go. So they're up on their list. You know, Pop Tarts is not on our list. Not one person has said Pop Tarts. It's because they break so easy in your pack. You know, it'd always just be a bunch of crumbs. Oh, Michael exactly. Waddell. Oh, Michael Waddell. What did he say? Reese's? Is that he said a candy, but I think he said Reese's, didn't he? I don't think it was Reese's because Reese's just, I mean, man, you talk about something that's not good in a pack. It's I love Reese's. They're my favorite, but they're not hunting candy. You get you have to have something a little tougher. Anyway, he said he always got snacks, but he mentioned one particularly. Yeah. I don't know what it was. We'll we'll have to consult the list. Right. We've had some good ones. There's a candy that's a hunting candy. It's peanut M and M's for sure. Mm, man, I don't know because when it gets cold, that chocolate freezes and yeah, it, uh, it all depends on the temperature. You know, I personally, I think for hunting, like in in all weather, can like. Not if it's too hot, because if it's too hot, chocolate melts. Maybe that's where your M&Ms come in. But uh, when it's cold, you know, a peanut butter Twix is tough to beat because it doesn't have caramel or anything that's going to freeze and, and be tough to eat. It's, But I can see peanut M&Ms. I'll have to test that out. Dylan? Now, now, me and Nick Munt, we agreed, and it's a little kid food, Uncrustables. Those are pretty good. Those, Those are, are pretty good, good. freestanding foods. I've never had one. Oh, Jason. I, those are those are easier, too, to not get it smashed in your pack. That's a pretty good one. I'm going to have hey, to try I'm, those out. I'm going to give you a, I'm going to give a plug here, Jason, if you don't mind, uh, for Mountain Archery Fest, uh, because we will be there the end of this month, um, the 24th through the 27th. We're going to be at Mountain Archery Fest. And, uh, and Jason, I'm going to bring you a box of Uncrustables. That way you can no longer say I've never had one. Okay, deal. I'll try them. And we'll destroy that whole box in a sitting, I promise. You got it. Okay. They're pretty good. That sounds good. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, Warren, thank you so much for all you do for uh, for Pope and Young with your measuring and, and for archery and the outdoor industry is a wonderful ambassador. Um, we appreciate it. And, and thank you for spending some time here with us today. Enjoy you having you on. Appreciate you guys having me on and let me be a part of it. Absolutely. We appreciate you being here. Feelings mutual, guys.